Welcome to episode 196 of No Challenges Reigning. I am Ben Rothenberg. We have two great interviews, I hope great, to hold you over on this episode before the US Open gets underway. The second of which is with Giri Nathan of Deadspin to talk about how Deadspin has suddenly embraced tennis this year and how Deadspin's ethos molds with the reverential world of tennis. But the first one is Paul Anacone a former player, sometime coach, and current commentator for Tennis Channel, who is just out with a new book called Coaching for Life, and he'll be doing a signing for that book if you happen to be in New York City at 2.30 p.m. on Friday. So check that out. It's at the South Street Seaport right after the draw ceremony. So it's a cool afternoon in the city for tennis if you are around. Uh, His book is called Coaching for Life, and here he is talking about it with me. Here with coach, commentator, and now author, Paul Anacone. Paul, thanks for being here. On thanks NCR. for having me, Ben. Uh, yeah, just quickly, just, well, get into it more, but quickly plug your, your book, which I guess is coming out. Is it already out? It's, it's out, it, yeah. It's, it's out. It's yeah. available now on Amazon.com and my website, paulanacone.com, and my publisher, irebooks.com. Audio and digital's in the works, so okay. those two will be ready shortly, and those will be on my website, uh, but the hardcover and paperback are out. It's been great. It's been a long a long time making, you know, it's been really, as they say in life, it's been a big journey because it's been, it's really kind of an autobiographical version of my development as a player and kind of how my coaching philosophy came to bear fruit uh, through all my experiences and then trying to put a lot of the anecdotal uses of things from my seven years with Pete and three with Roger and four with Tim, trying to show people the processes that made those those guys so successful because we all look at their talent we all look at how people are how so how talented they are and we kind of go backwards people look at result and they don't always look at why they're like that other than just uh the raw physical talent so for me it's just been that version and that journey and and you know being so lucky to sit in front row seats to watch those guys do many things do so many great things and to be able to kind of put it into words and hopefully people can get some stuff out of it that can be helpful to them too so you i think people probably know you more as a coach at this point but you were a player and a very good player at that point you would be number one american right now for a while now you got i think I'm not 12. Okay, yeah, yeah. so that would that would do it these days. Um, and so I guess what I guess what did so you obviously you were a world class top 12 player. Yeah. Uh, I guess, but what did what did you being around other guys? Which I didn't it's a fair way to start, but like how how did being around other guys who were a little higher in the rankings, top 10 co- guys who you coached and top five, uh, teach you things you didn't already know? It, Just being that sort of close proximity right there in the process with yeah, yeah. You know, whatever order you want to take them with another yeah, no, it's, it's, it's interesting Ben it's one of the things that was actually frustrating as a player one of the things that I found so prevalent about the top players Roger and Pete in particular is their ability to trust themselves in big moments you know we see them in these huge moments in finals of majors and dealing with adversity and figuring out what to do when things aren't going great and for us other players and other people in life, we tend not to trust ourselves in big moments. Yeah. So that's kind of the genesis of the book. And, and it's about managing your average days and understanding how to get more out of yourself when you're not really uh, performing at the highest level. So for me, I thought, boy, it's, it's, it's these guys that I've been fortunate enough to coach send such a great message that kind of 
it transcends tennis. It's more about uh, achievement and yeah. more about maximizing whatever your potential is. So when I look back in retrospect, and when I was 12 in the world, I actually wasn't patient enough and I panicked and I got away from what I did well and I started second guessing myself to try to get better instead of trying to reinforce my strength. So I learned an unbelievable amount. And like they always say, you know, you know all the cliches is that the youth is wasted on the young. If I only know now, well, I only knew then what I know now, all those things, you know. But it, to me, it's been an amazing thing. And I was very fortunate because I kept a lot of notes for many, many years. So I was able to kind of go back and look at stuff that made a lot of sense and kind of help formulate um, the messaging and the book yeah. and the structure and all these things that these guys were so great at, which was really fun to yeah. watch. This was just actually, you mentioned something that was just in the part of the book I was flipping through right before uh, we started, which was about your time with Sloan and mentioned something about how she had to sort of learn to accept playing average or how to win playing average. And I think a lot of people, when they talk about, you know, performance or whatever, think about reaching your, your best and your peak, but eventually it's all going to sort of with tennis or so many matches a year that you're going to sort of, uh, what's the word for it? Uh, revert to the mean right, eventually. Exactly. And you had to have just that be good. And I being around Sloan during a lot of time you were with her, she was somebody who could be a perfectionist a lot with her tennis. But, but how do you, how do you start to convince somebody and a younger player like, her, like she was when you were with her, that uh, you have to just find some level that might be your you know B B plus level and, right. and learn to make that and learn to be comfortable with that. Right, you can't you can't all have yeah, spot, all that. Yeah, you spot spot on. And whether yeah. it's tennis or writing or journalist or school teacher, you have your handful of great days, your handful of garbage days, and the rest is ma what makes you up. And as an athlete, and in particular as tennis and an individual athlete, it's even more prevalent because there's no place to hide. It's yeah. just you out there. And so people look at the all-time greats and they look at the amazing stuff. But one of the things that I found so interesting was someone like Pete in particular, Sampras taught me, taught me very early that his biggest weapon was that he trusted himself on his average days, he would find ways to win. Yeah. And when I was with Sloan, Sloan was still so young and, and it was tough because she would get a lot of, she would get some traction and then revert back to old themes that were of a younger player, which, yeah. which is normal. It was more panic. It was like, uh oh, I missed my forehand today. What am I going to do? Instead of reverting to a more stabilized understanding of I'm a great athlete, even if I'm not playing great tennis today, I'll use my movement, I'll use my mind and my strategy and figure ways out. And I think, unfortunately for Sloan, that's what happened last year right before and then she got hurt yeah and she was just starting to figure that out but she's such an awesome talent that it's really not a matter of if she does it it's when she does it and then can she do it consistently so those messages are hard to learn in individual sports yeah. and i think they're hard to learn in life but that's one of the things that i was taught uh or i, I grasped onto really early with the great players not their great day when they're great i mean it's like watching an artist you know yeah. it's amazing but for me as a coach and as a former player what's more interesting to me is what do they do on their average days what do they do when there's adversity a bad call an injury being sick whatever and to me that's what yeah. grabbed my mind more than anything and that really is what started the idea of this book is because i just felt like this is life yeah. this is what happens in life what how do you deal with that and still push on and try to be successful because you've joined players at a lot of different stages of their careers i mean sloan you said you mentioned you had early uh, pretty relatively early. i think she'd already made a when, when did you start she made australian so, open so before Maybe you got right with that. her yep. yeah yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. So I guess it, but you worked with Roger when he already had a couple slams under yeah, his belt. Sure, uh, Pete, I think also. Yeah, Pete was twenty three. Yeah. I've got the I've gotten lucky because I Sloan when she was I believe she was twenty still nineteen twenty, and um, Pete I started with when he was twenty three, Henman when he was twenty seven, 
and Roger in 2010, seven years ago. So he was 28. So I've had kind of a nice spectrum of it. And then my own playing days to kind of reflect on that evolution, that journey through stages. We we hear so much now about how there are so many older champions now and people talk about the physical recovery and everything getting better. But do you think also part of it is just that whatever the mental side of it is too, that they're used to dealing with, you know, you see Zverev, who's still in this tournament, for example, is one of the youngest guys, but still probably has more hot and cold days than a Federer, which yeah. is obviously not a fair person to compare anyone to when they're starting out, but you, but it does, you know, he will play against them sometimes, and you'll see yeah. how those strengths and weaknesses pop up, not yeah. just physicality. 100% right. You know, the fluctuations are more apparent in the younger players, and that's why the younger players that are, are really disciplined tend to be more consistent more quickly. And the more the younger players with the more simplistic games tend to be uh, better earlier. Someone like Nick Kyrgios, who emotionally and physically is a little bit more volatile. Yeah. He's going to have spectacular stuff and then stuff where you go, wow, how did that happen? Yeah. You know, and then you look at someone like Zverev, who, yeah, he has a few bumps in the road, but his game is pretty sound. It's pretty yeah. stable. So he's kind of matured a little bit more quickly. And, and there's, you know, those are the kind of things you have to take, take into consideration when you're developing not only athletes, but people. And that's why you know, a lot of the a lot of the formulas in the book and a lot of stuff that I talk about is about how you set up that baggage to create good baggage early on in development. So the default mode when you're twenty one to let's say thirty one in tennis, that your default mode is something that's a very positive thing, it's a trustworthy thing, it's a clear committed vision of how you need to execute whatever your strategy is to make yourself successful. So like I said, I mean, I was lucky because I was around the masters. You know, yeah. I was around Pete and Roger and I've never seen people that have been that able to focus in times of adversity and trust themselves and um, I learned a lot from it and I also saw that it's not just about their physical gifts it's about what they do mentally that allows the physical stuff to shine use the phrase good baggage which sounds sort of like good cholesterol or something (laughs) what what do you what do you you mean by good baggage if you can just you know parse out that sure that's that's you know it is one of my catchphrases and we all have baggage and and the thing in tennis is that you create baggage out of repetition good baggage and bad baggage and if you have that's why the developmental stages i think in tennis and in life are so important is early on you have habits that you start to create and they become unconscious so if you have a lot of really good habits then when you get nervous by the time your development is kind of stabilized let's say as a tennis player even 20 21 22 all those developmental years, you're going to go back to what those habits are. So it's either good baggage or bad baggage. Someone like David Ferrer is going to have a lot of good baggage. Someone like Kyrgios is going to have some challenging baggage because he has so many emotional reactions. So he has to figure out how to break through some of those stages. And that's why maybe right now it's a, it's a little bit of a challenge for him. And we're seeing some of those bumps because it's the years of how he's developed. He's incredibly gifted and we've seen that awesome talent. But with that talent comes the challenge of doing it day in and day out and that's where he's trying to fix things you invoked his name a couple times so i'll ask as a sort of member of the coaching fraternity and also just as just your own person maybe looking for more coaching projects down the line because you've done a little bit you were a stan Mm -hmm. it's unfortunately short grass season with him getting hurt but would you want to you think people want to coach cario to this point it's 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 obviously a bit of a project there's a massive upside a lot of attention downside how would you just as someone evaluating what it takes to coach a player curious in particular because he had obviously another sort of flame out hero he was hurt and uh, retired midway through the second set after looking out of it and saying mouthing he didn't want to play things like that i mean it was one of those you know one one more of the bad baggage which comes up too so i mean just on on him 
as a coach, do you think he's a, a good prospect now or a dangerous prospect, or does it depend on someone's risk aversion? Is or, there or how, a D, how do you put is it? Is there a D like all of the above? Yeah, sure, <laughs> all of the above. Okay. It is. It's a. It's an, it would be an incredible challenge, uh, but there's a lot of complexities involved. And you know, a lot of times people have asked me about him and what do I think, and and it's and I talk about this in my book too. It's it's about who should coach him, whoever he buys into. If he actually believes in someone that he, that can help him. Uh, create a sense of responsibility and accountability and have that good rapport back and forth with communication wise that's who should coach him but I think he would be an extremely exciting person to coach because the potential is phenomenal but there's a lot of complexities and we just mentioned those but for me as someone that's done this for a long time I love watching I don't like watching anyone suffer, but for me, it's always great to see the good and the bad, to see how they adjust. And I think he's getting better at it. Yeah. He just has to get better at it a little bit more consistently. So I think he would be a tremendous project um, as in terms of having someone to coach. But more interestingly enough, he's a terrific human being. I mean, I saw you tweet yesterday about the thing with the oh, serve. Yeah, yeah. He does some great kids with the, the kid yeah, I mean, serve. He has yeah. a great heart and he does so many great things too. So there is a really sensitive person in there that's trying to blossom and let that talent come out on a regular basis. So there's complexities yeah. involved, but what a, what a high top end. Because a lot of what you're known for is coaching, like you said, Pete and, Pete and Roger. I, I'm wondering if in sort of other coaches, uh, if they almost get put in sort of specialist categories like you're some maybe if, i don't know if you, this is fair to you or not but you're somebody who helps guys who are already at their best continue to stay at the top and other i don't know if there are other coaches who are seen as being ones who will take you from 100 to 20 in the world and then other coaches will take you from 20 to 5 and other coaches take you 5 to 1 do you think that is how, I, how, how coaches sort of work and there are pers- people who uh, yeah it's who a great perspective from yeah. your point of view and i think you're right and and again a lot of it is about what you know and and what your skill set is um i've been fortunate and i've done better and more impactful stuff with older players i mean you know sloan we were only together in nine months and at the end of it i mean she's still a very dear friend and i love her to death and her mom but at the end of it we just talked and i said you know it's my job to figure out how to get you traction and how it needs to sustain itself and i haven't been able to do that i wasn't able to quite get her to latch on to something and stay there so my advice to her when we split up was find someone you can really buy into and every day, you guys are going to be checks and balances yeah. with each other. And that's how it becomes consistent. So I, I, I think you do need to find out what you're best at. And, and I think that part of, part of that is also the team that you surround yourself with. Yeah. And that's one of the chapters, too, in Coaching for Life is, a, is about your team. And that's one of the things Roger is amazing yeah. at. He puts the right people in the right places, Roger better, and then he allows them to do their jobs. And, and so whether you're the physio or your strength and conditioner or the technical guy or the agent, you do your role well, and then you figure out who you are and how to execute it. So from a very long-winded point of view, you're right. I think there are categorizations, there are different types of specializations, whether it's a serve or a backhand, or they're developmental specializations. Um, and you have to figure out where you excel and then try to stay there if you can. Yeah. I guess, because we see tennis players, even, you know, good ones, if the course, over the course of, and I'm gonna throw, I don't know, if this, I haven't done the math on this, but over the course of, let's say, a 14-year career go through seven eight coaches sometimes that's normal that would seem like a lot for an nfl team to go through in that in that stretch of time but for for tennis players it's it's part of what it is it's just part of having different people come in at, at different points and i guess that's something you have to accept as a on the coaching side yeah, right you that, do. that people have that you're there for a certain chapter of somebody's life and then you may make your impact and then the impact might fade 
and it's yep. time for them to get somebody else and time for you to get yeah, somebody no, you, else. You look, I've, as, look, now that I'm an old dinosaur in the game, <laughs> I, I've got a pretty pragmatic viewpoint of it. Not my, my vision, and that's why when I helped Stan at Wimbledon and if I ever got involved again, you know, coaching-wise, it's always going to be, uh, at this stage for me, it's pretty pragmatic. It's not personal at all, and it's about being transparent about how you can help and what you think you can do. And if the communication's good and clear, it should be okay, you know. Um, but you're right. In tennis, it's very challenging because it's an individual sport. And at the pro level, the player pays the coach, yet the coach is supposed to tell the player what to do. Yeah. So there's a very strange dynamic that works there. So there, there's got to be a really good, I think, communication. And there's a lot of shifting, as you mentioned, yeah. developing um, throughout the throughout the different changes in coaching staff. And, and for me, that's what a lot of players, I think, I think that's where they make a mistake is they jump too quickly. They, they grab somebody because of a name or because of this or because of that before they really get to know what their messaging is, if they can help. And then all of a sudden, after two bad matches, it's let's move on. So you, I think it's a very difficult thing to do, but it's a, it's a very normal environment out here for that. But yeah. personally for me, that's why I try to make sure there's a, and I talked to Stan at great length yeah. before we, you know, spent some time together just to make sure we were really clear and I was really clear and Magnus was really clear with me and I understood my role and that made it very, very workable. Do you think that when, when you were a player, did you know that you'd be a good coach? Could you tell that in your personality? Had you thought about being a coach during your playing days, or when did when did that sort of? Uh, I'm trying to remember how long it was between any of your playing career no, yeah, and the start of your coaching it's career. A, it's, but, a good, it's a good, it's a good, great question, Ben. Because I mean, part of it is and and part of it is trying to figure out what you do next. Because our careers are so short as players. But towards the end of my career, I had a foot surgery and then an elbow surgery, and so I was out for a while. And I remember as I was doing that, I started kind of helping players. I was talking to Jim Grab a lot, who you may remember. Yeah. Talked to Jim a lot about his game, and I started coaching him a little bit. I talked to Ken Flack's younger brother, Doug. Helped him a little bit, then started helping Justin Gimmel stop. So I started kind of dabbling in coaching, and then, you know, Pete kind of came along in a very tragic way when Tim Gullickson got brain cancer, but we were all friends, and that the whole goal with that was to try to make a horrible situation a little bit more tolerable because we were close, and that was kind of accidental. Yeah. And so I guess those first initial steps, yeah, I started, hey, it's nice to try to supplementally help somebody else. So I, I didn't know it at the time, but looking back, now I see how it made sense. Do you, do you know, do you, can you think of guys who are, or women who are currently on the tour who you think would make good coaches? Can you spot that in someone's personality while they're still playing? It's challenging to do that, Ben. It's a great question, but it's so challenging because as a player, everything is about yeah. you. My schedule, my this, my, and, and as a coach, everything is about trying to have a vision to supplementally input something that you don't control that's not about you. So that's a that's a tough dynamic. Um, but if you look at people that are thoughtful, that communicate well, those are the people that would probably be really good coaches. So you look at people, um, you look at people that are really high tennis IQ that understand big moments, the players that do that really well, you would think they would be great coaches. But who, who are players come tonight? If you, if well, how about somebody like names, how about yeah. somebody like Andre that's now starting, you know, yeah. that started with Novak, who's a really great deep thinker, knows so much, been in so many scenarios for another great player should be a great matchup, yeah. right? You would think someone like Pete Sampras, who I coach, probably. He, he hasn't latched, wouldn't, I mean, I know people have asked him to, but he d doesn't love the idea of it because it's not how his mind operates, and I totally get it. I think Roger, if he wanted to do it, would be a phenomenal coach because of his perspective, because of his balanced um, 
kind of ability to deal with pro and con and also to understand situations and also to, this sounds crazy, but also his ability to accept, accept imperfection and try to do well with what yeah. you have on the day. So those people like that would be terrific. Um, the challenging, more challenging people are people I think that are really great, but really volatile or really passionate. You look at someone, um, even like John McEnroe, I think he, I think he would probably admit that he struggled a little bit in the transition because he was so passionate and so driven. He knew what clicked for him, but then how do you express that to get someone else to lock in? Yeah. That, that's the coach. Look, my coaching philosophy is very simple. It's how little can I say to impact the player and get them to do what they need to do. And then it's up to them. Yeah. You mentioned it a little earlier, but the sort of interesting coaching dynamic where you're supposed to be the coach, but the player has hiring and firing power. And I guess, I guess in your various relationships, I don't know if it's been different with different players or shifts even within during the relationship, but who sort of feels like the, the alpha use that term on a, on a team it's, it's there. that's a it's a again i think that then goes hand in hand with the developmental stages yeah like with stone with sloan i felt like i needed to be a little bit more forceful i yeah. needed to be a little bit more uh dictatorial with someone like pete who was even he was still young but he had already won four majors i think it was a little bit more collaborative okay. and it was a little bit more of getting him to buy in so that he trusted what I was telling him. With Tim Henman, who was very smart and had a really active mind, it was pretty collaborative and very communicative. Roger, who was older, Federer, had won so much, but is a very introspective and open communicator, allowed me to uh, give him philosophies. He would, he'll test, he'll say, well, you know, how or why does that work? Yeah. But he's open to that collaboration. So you have to manage the personalities and figure out how to deliver the messages, yeah. if that makes sense. You might you might come from a, a biased point of view on this question, but we get, it's something with journalists where we have to weigh all the time how much credit coaches deserve for success or failure. I mean, if you see a, a player, let's say for, let's use a hypothetical example, this didn't mm-hmm. happen, but let's mm-hmm. say Coco Vandeway had started with Pat Cash and let's say she had actually won Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. And he had started working with her two weeks before that, or at, at, during the grass season. How much credit might he have been due for that? I mean, she made an Australian Open semi before she's right. been made Wimbledon right. deep before. Right. But how much? And just from the outside, can you know how much credit or blame to give without knowing more? Or yeah. is, there, is there an no, easy, I, easy answer to I that? I don't think there's an easy one. I think it's both qualitative and quantitative. Yeah. And and I think from my perspective, if that hypothetical happened, I would say Ka- uh, Pat Cash would have been extremely helpful in the big matches at the end of the tournament. Okay. He's been there. He understands how to manage that situation. That's where he can have an impact. For her to get to those matches, probably Craig Carden and the other folks gave her those skill her base, sets. Yeah. Right? You know yeah. what I mean? And so it's kind of this transitional handoff. So everybody has a certain role, and then you have to figure out, but, but to just kind of quantitatively say, well, that coach should get 90% of the credit. I'm not so sure. You know, and for me, look, like I said, I've been with two of the greatest of all time. I'd love to beat my chest and say it was about me. But we all know that they are unbelievable, unbelievably special and gifted people. I think I helped them sustain it. I think I added value. But I also know that great players tend to figure things out. They just have to be pointed in the right direction. And that's my job. Um, So it's one of those things that you can't put a percentage on. And every player is a little bit different. It's last, let's see, I'll leave you with this. Is there one player, past or present, and maybe past is easier in case you're ever, you know, feeling future offers, who you didn't get the chance to coach, who you would have loved to have been able to 
be alongside and sort of had input and, and see how their mind and their sort of greatness because you work at the top of the ladder a yeah. lot how, how, how they sort of how they sort of operate anybody you would have wanted to I, just been curious or yeah or i mean interested look, in, in being a part of well now as i've gotten older i've become much more curious and again that was this one of the seedlings to writing this book is that i've become very interested in, in seeing and hearing different perspectives i mean if i were you know of the same Pete era, I would have loved to spend some time with Andre, mm. you know, just to see his maturation and his journey because it was so spectacular and there were so many different facets to it. So for me, in terms of a guy to be able to spend some time with Andre would have been amazing. I would have loved to spend um, some time with Serena Williams as well to see all the things that she went through and to see kind of her for lack of a better term, matriculation through the process. Sure, you know, yeah. those things Those things intrigue me. People that have to go through a lot yet achieve a lot are interesting to me. And, and, and so that kind of, um, you know, that, that kind of is, is something, those are two people in, in particular that really, to me, are interesting. Well, they're both, uh, at least Serena's coming back at some point, so she'll continue, so. continue to interest us in the future. Paul, thank you very much for uh, talking to me today. Ben, thank, thanks book. so much. I appreciate it. And hopefully... Uh, Hopefully a lot of people go out and read Coaching for Life. It's been a lot of fun writing it. So thanks a lot, Ben. Thank you, Paul. And next is Giri Nathan from Deadspin here to talk about his emerging role in the tennis media landscape in the U.S. and how tennis and Deadspin come together and clash or harmonize as it is. Here is Giri Nathan, who is the tennis writer for Deadspin, which still sounds like an oxymoron to me <laughs> when I say it out loud. Uh, thanks for being here on of NCR. Course. Uh, yeah, I guess, yeah, explain, if, if you can, just how you became the tennis writer for Deadspin and how Deadspin suddenly started giving a shit about tennis within the last 12 months. It's been a very noticeable, because I've followed Deadspin, like, on Twitter forever right. and otherwise, and, uh, like, Deadspin, and, but just, like, the amount of, like, times, like, I don't know, I've seen, like, Marin Cilic in the headline of a Deadspin <laughs> post this year has been astronomically above what I ever would have expected. <laughs> so how, how did this all come to be? And, and talk about, I guess, how you started Deadspin and how... You started doing tennis at Deadspin also. Yeah, so I think one of the cool things about our site is that it's always uh, a function of the interests of its staff at any given time. So if it has people who are interested in export, then export's going to get some coverage. Um, I actually started doing mostly like lifestyle and pop culture stuff, a little bit of NBA coverage, and then at some point figured that this was a sport that I was interested in and um, that wasn't heavily covered in the American sports blogosphere and um, wanted to give it a shot. So there, there was definitely some hard parts in the beginning, as you can imagine. The Deadspin audience is not the most obvious right. tennis viewership, <laughs> um, but it's been a fun challenge. Yeah, if you can just describe people, hopefully everybody, we have a bunch of international listeners who might be less familiar with Deadspin, if not familiar, if completely unfamiliar at all, but explain what Deadspin sort of aesthetic or audience or voice sort of is and yeah. why yeah let's start with that and then we'll get into why that was not tennis right but yeah what is Deadspin basically so Deadspin is a sports blog that has a very irreverent and also adversarial tone a lot of the time um, it predominantly covers the big four American sports leagues um, and I think that also accounts for a huge chunk of our readership too um, so given that tennis is probably the most reverent, or at least least yeah, irreverent very, sport. Very reverent sport, that's a good way to put it, yeah. <laughs> um, it wasn't the most natural fit, but I think it's been it's proved f like a fun challenge in that there are aspects of the sport that other parts of the tennis media may not be able to cover as readily 
um, or with the same kind of, I don't know, crass tone that yeah. our sport revels, uh, our site revels in. Was it easy to convince people, your editors at Deadspin, that you writing more about tennis <laughs> was a worthwhile use of your time? Yeah, they're and very the site's time. They're very chill. Um, I think so long as someone is interested and can write interestingly and hopefully not too uh, misinformedly about something, <laughs> they're very down for us to give it a shot. And yeah. it kind of started out as an experiment and developed into something I'd cover more and more regularly. And, and how I guess how would you say, and this goes into general questions about tennis's place in American sports culture, but how would you say that tennis is sort of viewed by other people at Deadspin within your, you know, edit, editors meetings or just your Slack channels or whatever right. you might have it when you see tennis pop up. I mean, I know, like, I, I worked at ESPY Nation yeah. before, and so I know that, like, that's where I started before I was freelancing and at the times, and they're, they were always just sort of confused by tennis or didn't really mm-hmm. seem to, didn't want to pay tennis too much attention or didn't really get it on some basic level. Um, we're happy to have me do my own thing and just kind of, like, right. sit in the corner at my little tennis post, and they didn't they didn't get in my way too much, but right. it was never a priority unless something, like, crazy happened, like, Isner Mahout, I remember, happened while I was there. Yeah, that, and so that they, they were, like, all that day, like, it was, like, dominating all the traffic. They're like, oh, my God, we need, like, 20 right. Isner Mahout posts a minute, which right. I, like, I live-blogged that match. It was terrible. Um, <laughs> but, but, yeah, but so what are your – how, how do you think tennis is perceived by those sort of folks? That's a good question. I think my – Coworkers are very chill, and while I can't say I've made converts of that many people in terms of just like watching average like ATP 500 match or something like that, um, I do think they're they've been really supportive and have picked up on a lot of the narratives in the sport. Um, something like uh, like Roger and Rafa are household names, obviously, and anyone can definitely appreciate how they've kind of surged back this year. Then there are other characters who I think have a more obviously deadspin appeal. Uh, Nick Kyrgios would be the most obvious example in kind of two ways. One is just the stuff that comes out of his mouth. Yeah. It's always very frank and interesting and funny. And also he gives you highlight real fodder almost every time he plays. And those are definitely two of our main lanes in terms of the kinds of things we cover. Yeah. Um, so my main strategy has kind of been like yeah, finding the most dead spinny aspects of a not particularly dead spinny sport and kind of leaning into those as yeah. much as possible. And the way, just the re- I mean, it's not entirely dissimilar from a lot of the stuff that Courtney used to do. I don't know if you ever mm-hmm. remember Courtney's yeah, yeah. old blog, 40 yeah. Deuce, which was, again, very irreverent and like a lot of, like, reveled in, like, a lot of sort of shit talking and just, like, right. being a bit, bringing a bit more sort of, you know, irreverent nature to this very reverent tenancy scene. And that can fit itself well. But I guess, do you find it's easy to write about tennis? in a dead spin style? Yeah. Or, or is, is that a natural fit or something you have to some sort of, sometimes sort of bend things to make them feel dead spinny? I definitely feel like it's pretty coherent with the overall tone of the site. Um, and I think it's cool that, it's cool to have the platform to do that on our site. Um, uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. It's okay. that's, <laughs> that's, that's the whole answer there, that, that works. <laughs> I, wanted, I, I made a list of my favorite uh, to give people a sense of what kind of stuff. I, do you write your own headlines? Uh, How does I that work thank some of my editors, Tom Lay, Barry Pachesky, Tim Marshman, Sam Rakoff okay. for helps with their headlines, but I'd say it's a give and take for sure. Okay, because I write, for the record, I write none of my own headlines for the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And most newspaper writers don't write any of their own headlines, uh, but it's good to... So here's just a, t- a sampling of your recent tennis headlines give you a sense of <laughs> what kind of stuff we're dealing with here, which I think can also, and we'll get into this with one particular one, sort of like shock tennis fans who see them pop up on their feed right. sometimes. Um, uh, these players will not beat Rafael Nadal, colon, a largely pointless French Open preview. 
Rafael Nadal notched his first kill. Kenny Shikori is shook. <laughs> Nick Kyrgios stopped giving a shit and crashed out of the Australian Open. Stan Wawrinka drained Joe Wilfried Tsonga's will to live. Uh, and then the one that got the most most controversy, which I agreed with at the time for sure, was Marin Cilic sucks now. Yeah. Which uh, was, I think, back in February or I something. Not, I would not back up that take right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, even you wasting time at your job right now are not phoning in it as badly as this tennis player who was, of course, Bernard Tomic. <laughs> um, old man Federer signs new deal, may keep playing until humanity leaves from Mars. Dustin Brown is the wackiest motherfucker in tennis. The Indian Wells men's draw is one big clusterfuck. When Nick Kyrgios gives a shit, he's the future of tennis. Rafael Nadal removed a man's soul from his body. Andy Murray sur- survives Fabio Fanini, the sleepy pirate, which I appreciated. Um... Nick Kyrgios combusts, stays dead. Um, uh, yeah, Roger Federer went to the Met Ball in a sweet-ass Cobra tuxedo. <laughs> uh, Nick Kyrgios is now a used car salesman. <laughs> Nike drapes its athletes in a mess of green puke, which I agree those outfits were terrible. Yeah, they're hideous. Uh, good Lord, these moody man-children can play tennis. You know who that was about? Uh, that was Sasha and Nick, I yeah, think. That's, yeah, that's Zverev and Kyrgios. Very good. Uh, finally, some more shit-talking in tennis. Oh, Sasha, too. <laughs> yeah. Rafael Nadal took a gifted youth's lunch money and his will to live. Uh, kindly Bozo gets fed to Novak Djokovic. <laughs> that was you know, David Goffin. <laughs> no, that was Malfeas. Oh, was it? That was Yeah, the okay. US Open yeah, semis, yeah. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> um, Alexander Zverev, the large tennis kid, can move. Uh, that was one of his first keeping up with his career, I think. Nick yeah. Kyrgios picks NBA celebrity game over tennis tournament, which is actually good as hell. Yeah. <laughs> um, Katie, I like this one. Katie Shikori had all the tools to beat Andy Murray, but he spilled them on the floor. <laughs> and you have other ones, which I think sort of are more classic, feel more like Deadspin because they're just, you know, non-tennis. But, like, I saw you had one that said, put Phil Jackson in jail and then put the jail in space. And then my favorite one of yours is uh, just a non-sports one altogether, I think. It could be Wimbledon. <laughs> Look at this fucked up strawberry I bought. So Hopefully those are some I'll of the things. I'll bring that back to Wimbledon next yeah, year. <laughs> those, are sort of, those, are, those are some good ones. Uh, but then also... One that you did, which I think also stands out for being completely different than these, yeah. which is Juan Martín del Potro may not play the Australian Open. Yeah. So that's the odd thing about this, the way sort of you guys have done it, because you're doing so much about it, more than, like, more probably posts, at least as many maybe, about the same as I do. Uh-huh. But you cover some, like, granular parts of sport that, like, yeah. U.S. media doesn't even have, like, time for. Right. Like, del Potro's Australian Open in doubt. Like, I don't think we would have done an article for the Times on just him being, like, a maybe or like we wouldn't have, maybe when he actually pulled out, but even maybe Navi didn't pull out. We might just run AP like a blurb, agate right. kind of thing for that. So, yeah, how how do you balance like how granular to go? Because you have yeah. been pro- arguably, with, except for like tennis.com, mm-hmm. maybe like the most prolific tennis covering site out of yeah. nowhere in right. 2017. So I think there's two things there. One is that just the nature of our site is that we get to uh, like hit anywhere on the spectrum between like a long fat out piece and just a quick hit yeah. to like a tiny highlight some isolated piece of news so we have that flexibility that's good yeah, yeah I'm, that's, I'm jealous of that I will say and that's one of my favorite things about uh, doing tennis at Deadspin yeah. I would also say the other part is our editors definitely encourage us to follow the narratives of the sport that we're interested in and not necessarily all the ones that like comprise like uh, stuff people should care about um, yeah. so in my case I like Del Potro is a player I'm, I'm personally find very fun to watch and yeah. think has a strong following so I just that's the kind of post where I just want to put in a paragraph or two just to keep people 
involved. And you can't tell who your favorite players are from going through your headlines. Yeah, right. The one who jumped out <laughs> most, who got like three or four posts in March. Do you know mm-hmm. who I'm going to talk about? Yeah, Grigor Dimitrov. No, yeah. no, oh, really? no. Even more, much more obscure than that. Uh, from the Indian Wells time. Oh, was it uh, Yoshida? Yes, Nishioka? Yoshida yeah. Nishioka. They were all. I was scrolling through. There was like something yeah, like yeah. four Nishioka posts. I was like, wow, that is definitely more that like that's been written in the English language about Nishioka. Right. Ever I, before. I, I feel like that's the, definitely the most fun part. I'm never going to get any pushback on yeah. that. Um, it's like the stuff that I'm interested in becomes the stuff that our readership reads about. Yeah. And uh, like he, he had a really cool little narrative arc uh, during those two weeks and for a little while after. And I was really bummed when he got hurt. Do you feel like you are successfully proselytizing Deadspin readers into becoming tennis fans? You, I don't know how you measure that, but do you sense that people now when they might have seen this, like your first couple posts were like, mm-hmm. why the fuck is tennis in my feed? Are now like, oh yeah, I, I care about that. If not Nishioka, at least maybe Curios right. a lot more. Right, I, I would say... Or Djokovic sucking, which has been another one of your themes this year. Everyone's yeah. theme, but you do it in a much more overt, he sucks now way. Yeah. Um, I would say I'm pretty clear-eyed about what the overall draws of our site are going to be. It's going to be the major yeah. like American leagues. Um, but I do like to think I've made some converts among our readers and... Definitely the initial pushback or surprise that I got from commenters has, has morphed slowly into just kind of a more appreciative vibe. Um, and I, I, ho- I like to think that maybe that's encouraged one or two people along the way to turn on a tennis match that they might yeah. not have paid attention to otherwise. So I'm talking to you here at the City Open in Washington. I also saw you earlier this year in Indian Wells, which all goes against Deadspin's like, yeah. motto of like which without access right uh what have you gathered from being on site at tournaments and being yeah. which is and how if how does that i can't remember off the top of my head what you've written this week or then but i'm trying uh, how different is it being a dead reporter yeah on site because we just as a sports media person we don't see those very often for sure uh i would say i think my favorite thing to gather uh, and i haven't written for deadspin this week um about the city open but i'd say overall when i'm at an event like this uh my favorite thing to gather is just kind of the on-scene color like I saw Curios, like walking out of the locker room, and a bunch of like slurring, drunk, enthusiastic middle-aged dudes were just like, "Hey, Nick, Nick, Nick!" And without missing a beat, he just says, "What's in your pitcher?" It's like an unidentified dark liquid, <laughs> and they're like, "It's sangria, dude!" And he's like, "Is it alcoholic?" And, and he just walks away. <laughs> and just like all these little scenes that I that I think yeah. definitely contribute to my understanding of these personalities that I wouldn't have seen, because like. That's the kind of thing I can drop into a blog post without making too much of it, but unless yeah. it really fits the angle of a more right. reported out piece, yeah. it wouldn't make sense. No, and that's the yeah. kind of thing, like, you see that a good, and I try to make my Twitter a lot of those sort of little right, moments right, right. stuff, but you see that also with, like, John Wertheim does this thing at the end of each slam called, like, 15 shots, that. and those yeah. are, like, a lot of, like, empty right. of those little kind of moments like that, which I always loved. Yeah. Those are the sort of things, yeah, you only... I really, I think that's those are the kind of things that give people an access point yeah. to a sport that they don't know too well it's yeah. like the little granular details yeah. like that one other thing which i think we talked about in new wells when i met you there um that makes your coverage sort of different is that it's like 95 percent men yeah at least um why why do you think that is so far because it's definitely different yeah. than your average tennis reporter especially american definitely tennis um, is, that, is that a deadspin thing i know deadspin i think a lot of people sort of see deadspin as like very very male and being yeah. sort of the counterpoint to Jezebel right. or something which is like the female women's mm-hmm. site and it's, it's been sort of the men's site you guys do like the switch right. on April Fool's Day or something like that yeah, what, yeah, what, that do you, what do you uh, but why Why is that yeah. how did that how do you so, think that played out or is that something that's I a think, conscious thing yeah I think that's a huge deficiency of our reporting as of now and I would chalk it up to the main thing is that I really didn't I 
follow the tour as closely uh, in like the four years when I was at college. And then when I checked back in, the men's tour was roughly unchanged. Um, So I could kind of pick back the narrative threads where I left them off. And the women's tour, besides the two names that I still try to keep up with, the Williams sisters, obviously, and Sharapova, um, which are also names familiar to our readership. Um, But we definitely want to work on that going forward. And we brought on another blogger who knows tennis really well, especially the women's game. So I'm pretty excited to see. I feel like I'm trying to think of who the most W, the most, the one who strikes me as the most dead spin on WTA is Mladenovich, mm-hmm. because she's flashy and a huge shit talker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that would seem to be on brand for you. But yeah, yeah I, I guess yeah. But it, I just didn't know if that was like context. Because I guess women's sports in general, obviously, everywhere are probably less mm-hmm. covered. That's been probably no different than anywhere else. Maybe maybe more. So I don't know. But I think we're yeah. yeah I mean, I we definitely try to do um, like little features here and there. But it's it's no doubt a weakness and uh, something we definitely want to work on going okay. forward. Uh, what? Uh, so you mentioned Kyrgios as being like I think I think we we talked in dead when we talked in Andy Wells again he said you said he was like one of the most dead spinny athletes like, yeah. in any sport yeah I <laughs> totally agree with that who else are you like do you think has dead spin potential yeah so I I've, I personally think that the sport in general would be well served if it let some of its personalities uh, flash their colors a little more yeah. and I think like you do have a lot of young guys with a lot of fun and interesting things to say I think Sasha's got a good personality yeah. when he gets the right. Uh, chance to express it. Um, so, I'm trying to think who else. Well, Monfils is another oh, Deadspin yeah. classic. Like, my favorite thing that I think I did at Indian Wells was just like a one highlight reel from his John Isner match, which is like, I don't know, him jumping over a ball, him doing one of his like five feet in the air overhead smashes. Yeah. Um, he's just such a good, like, you don't even need to know tennis to be entertained by that yeah. stuff. Um, and I think like anyone who has that kind of immediate appeal has a good deadspin. Very cool. So where should folks follow your stuff? Yeah, so you can uh, catch me on deadspin under the tag tennis. Um, and, and you're on Twitter. And I'm on Twitter. Uh, my name is Giddy Nathan. I'm at Giddy Nathan. G-I-R-I. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, that's about it. I've got an upcoming feature about City Open that I'm pretty excited about. And you should check it out. On deadspin? Uh, that one's going to be for the Washington Post magazine. Oh, cool. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you very much for joining us here. Of course, Keeping thanks for having me. Dead Spanish and tennis. Yeah, like I said, it's, it's a fascinating love child of the two. It's being <laughs> born before our eyes, so you all should examine it and see what you think. I think it's been pretty successful so far. It's Hope. been fun. Yeah. 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 Thanks again. Thanks, man. So thank you very much, Giri and Paul, and thank you guys for listening to this episode of No Challenges Remaining. If you want to follow along when you're not listening, you can do so by liking us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at ncr underscore tennis subscribe to us on itunes and leave us reviews there tell your friends i guess i don't know if you have questions for any upcoming shows for any of the u.s open stuff uh our email address is no challenges remaining at gmail.com thanks for listening guys and we will see you soon in new york bye